Lesson 10 for December 2 through to 8, ready for teaching on Sabbath, December 9. Children of the Promise. Sabbath afternoon, December 2. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to open your word again this week. We thank you that each week your Holy Spirit helps guide our thinking, helps enlighten our minds, helps us understand more of what you have in your word for us. And as we open your word this week, we pray that that may happen again. We also pray that in our own personal lives, you will be evident and that others may know that we have been with Jesus. We pray in his dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Romans chapter 9, verse 18. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Let's repeat that again, Romans 9.18. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Romans 9 verses 13 and 15. What is Paul talking about here? What about human free will and the freedom to choose without which very little of what we believe makes sense? Are we not free to choose or reject God? Or are these verses teaching that certain people are elected to be saved and others to be lost, regardless of their own personal choices? The answer is found, as usual, by looking at the bigger picture of what Paul is saying. Paul is following a line of argument in which he attempts to show God's right to pick those whom he will use as his elected ones. After all, God is the one who carries the ultimate responsibility of evangelizing the world. Therefore, why can he not choose as his agents whomever he wills? So long as God cuts off no one from the opportunity of salvation, such an action on God's part is not contrary to the principles of free will. Even more important, it's not contrary to the great truth that Christ died for all humans and his desire that everyone have salvation. As long as we remember that Romans 9 is not dealing with the personal salvation of those it names, but that it is dealing with their call to do a certain work. The chapter presents no difficulties. Sunday, December 3, Paul's Burden Exodus chapter 19, verse 6 reads, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. God needed a missionary people to evangelize a world steeped in paganism, darkness, and idolatry. He chose the Israelites and revealed himself to them. He planned that they would become a model nation and thus attract others to the true God. 
It was God's purpose that by the revelation of his character through Israel, the world, should be drawn unto him, Ellen White writes in Christ Object Lessons, page 290. She continues, Through the teaching of the sacrificial service, Christ was to be uplifted before the nations, and all who would look unto him should live. As the numbers of Israel increased, they were to enlarge their borders until their kingdom should embrace the world. Question. Read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through to 12. What point is Paul making here about the faithfulness of God amid human failures? Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness to the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. But... It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of flesh. These are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger." Paul is building a line of argument in which he will show that the promise made to Israel had not completely failed. There exists a remnant through whom God still aims to work. To establish the validity of the idea of the remnant, Paul dips back into Israelite history. He shows that God has always been selective. 1. God did not choose all the seed of Abraham to be his covenant, only the line of Isaac. 2. He did not choose all the descendants of Isaac, only those of Jacob. It's important, too, to see that heritage or ancestry does not guarantee salvation. You can be of the right blood, the right family, even of the right church and yet still be lost, still be outside the promise. It is faith, a faith that works by love, that reveals those who are children of the promise, as it said in verse 8 of chapter 9. And so to finish today, look at the phrase in Romans 9, 6. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. What important message can we find there for ourselves as Adventists, who in many ways play the same roles in our era that the ancient Israelites did in theirs?
Monday, December 4. Elected. Romans chapter 9, verses 12 and 13 read, It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. As stated in the introduction for this week, it is impossible to understand Romans 9 properly until one recognises that Paul is not speaking of individual salvation. He is here speaking of particular roles that God was calling upon certain individuals to play. God wanted Jacob to be the progenitor of the people who would be his special evangelising agency in the world. There is no implication in this passage that Esau could not be saved. God wanted him to be saved as much as he desires all men to be saved. Question. Read Romans chapter 9 verses 14 and 15. How do we understand these words in the context of what we have been reading? Romans 9 beginning at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Again, Paul is not speaking of individual salvation, because in that area God extends mercy to all, for he will have all men to be saved, as it says in 1 Timothy 2.14. And in Titus 2.11, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. But God can choose nations to play roles, and although they can refuse to play those roles, they cannot prevent God's choice. No matter how hard Esau may have willed it, he could not have become the progenitor of the Messiah, nor of the chosen people. In the end, it was no arbitrary choice on the part of God, not some divine decree by which Esau was shut out from salvation. The gifts of His grace through Christ are free to all. We've all been elected to be saved, not lost, as it says in Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. It's our own choices, not God's, that keep us from the promise of eternal life in Christ. Jesus died for every human being. Yet God has set forth in his word the conditions upon which every soul will be elected to eternal life, faith in Christ, which leads the justified sinner to obedience. And so to finish today, as if no one else ever existed, you yourself were chosen in Christ even before the foundation of the world to have salvation. This is your calling, your election, all given to you by God through Jesus. What a privilege, what a hope. All things considered, why does everything else pale in comparison to this great promise? Why would it be the greatest of all tragedies to let sin 
self and the flesh take away from you all that's been promised you in Jesus. Tuesday, December 5, Mysteries Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9 reads, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Question. Read Romans chapter 9, verses 17 through to 24. Given what we have read so far, How are we to understand Paul's point here? Romans 9, beginning at verse 17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay, from the same lump to make one vessel for honour and another for dishonour? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. By dealing with Egypt at the time of the Exodus in the manner he did, God was working for the salvation of the human race. God's revelation of himself in the plagues of Egypt and in the deliverance of his people was designed to reveal to the Egyptians, as well as to other nations, that the God of Israel indeed was the true God. It was designed to be an invitation for the peoples of the nations to abandon their gods and to come and worship him. Obviously, Pharaoh had already made his choice against God, so that in hardening his heart, God was not cutting him off from the opportunity of salvation. The hardening was against the appeal to let Israel go, not against God's appeal for Pharaoh to accept personal salvation. Christ died for Pharaoh just as much as for Moses, Aaron, and the rest of the children of Israel. The crucial point in all this is that as fallen human beings, we have such a narrow view of the world, of reality, and of God, and how he works in the world. How can we expect to understand all of God's ways, when the natural world, everywhere we turn, holds mysteries we can't understand? After all, it was only in the past 171 years that doctors learned it might be a good idea to wash their hands before performing surgery. That's how steeped in ignorance we have been. And who knows, if time should last, what other things will we discover in the future that will reveal just how steeped in ignorance we are today? And so, to finish today, 
Certainly, we don't always understand God's ways, but Jesus came to reveal to us what God is like, as it says in John 14.9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Why then, amid all of life's mysteries and unexpected events, is it so crucial for us to dwell on the character of Christ and what he has revealed to us about God and his love for us? How can knowing what God's character is like help us to stay faithful amid trials that seem so unjustified and so unfair? Wednesday, December 6, Am I my people? In Romans chapter 9, verse 25, Paul quotes Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, and in Romans 9, 26, he quotes Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10. The background is that God instructed Hosea to take a wife of whoredoms. That's chapter 1 and verse 2 as an illustration of God's relationship with Israel, because the nation had gone after strange gods. The children born to this marriage were given names signifying God's rejection and punishment of idolatrous Israel. The third child was named Loamai, L-O-A-M-M-I, as in Hosea chapter 1 verse 9, meaning literally, not my people. Yet, Amid all this, Hosea predicted that the day would come when, after punishing his people, God would restore their fortunes, take away their false gods, and make a covenant with them. And we read about that in Hosea chapter 2, verses 11 through to 19. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her sabbaths, all her appointed feasts, and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me, so I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her. For the days of the bales to which she burned incense, she decked herself with her earrings and jewellery, and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, says the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me husband, and no longer call me master." For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by her, their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant for them, with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth, to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever, yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving-kindness, and mercy. At this point, 
those who were low ami, not my people, would become ami, A-M-M-I, my people. In Paul's day, the ami were even us, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, Romans 9.24. What a clear and powerful presentation of the gospel, a gospel that from the start was intended for the whole world. No wonder we as Seventh-day Adventists take part of our calling from Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Today, as in Paul's day, and as in the days of ancient Israel, the good news of salvation is to be spread throughout the world. Question. Read Romans chapter 9, verses 25 to 29. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who were not my beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And, as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Notice how much Paul quotes the Old Testament to make his point about the things that were happening in his day. What is the basic message found in this passage? What hope is being offered there to his readers? The fact that some of Paul's kinsmen rejected the appeal of the gospel gave him great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart, as he said in Romans 9 too. But at least there was a remnant. God's promises do not fail, even when humans do. The hope we can have is that, in the end, God's promises will be fulfilled, and if we claim those promises for ourselves, they will be fulfilled in us as well. And so to finish today, how often have people failed you? How often have you failed yourself and others? Probably more times than you can count, right? What lessons can you learn from these failures about where your ultimate trust must be? Thursday, December 7, Stumbling. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 32 reads, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness? Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith. Question. What's the message here? And more important, how can we take this message that was written in a certain time and place and apply the principles to ourselves today? 
How can we avoid making the same mistakes in our context that some Israelites did in theirs? In words that cannot be misunderstood, Paul explains to his kinsmen why they are missing out on something that God wishes them to have, and more than that, on something they were actually pursuing but not achieving. Interestingly, the Gentiles, whom God had accepted, had not even been striving for such acceptance. They had been pursuing their own interests and goals when the gospel message came to them. Grasping its value, they accepted it. God declared them righteous because they accepted Jesus Christ as their substitute. It was a transaction of faith. The problem with the Israelites was that they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As we read in Romans 9.33, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offence, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Some, but not all, as it said in Acts 2.41, then those who gladly received his word were baptised, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, refused to accept Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah whom God had sent. He did not meet their expectations of the Messiah. Hence, they turned their backs on him when he came. Before this chapter ends, Paul quotes another Old Testament text. And it's seen here in Romans 9.33, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offence, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. In this passage, Paul shows again just how crucial true faith is in the plan of salvation. As Paul writes in 1 Peter 2, 6-8, Therefore, It is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offence. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. A rock of offence? And yet, whoever believes in him shall not be ashamed. Yes, for many, Jesus is a stumbling block. But for those who know him and love him, he is another kind of rock. As it says in Psalm 89, verse 26, The rock of my salvation. And so to finish today, have you ever found Jesus to be a stumbling block or a rock of offence? If so, how? That is, what were you doing that brought you into that situation? How did you get out? And what did you learn so that one hopes you never find yourself in that type of contrary relationship to Jesus again? Friday, December 8. From the book Testimonies to Ministers and Gospel Workers, pages 453 and 454, I read, There is an election of individuals and a people 
the only election found in the Word of God, where man is elected to be saved. Many have looked at the end, thinking they were surely elected to have heavenly bliss, but this is not the election the Bible reveals. Man is elected to work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. He is elected to put on the armour, to fight the good fight of faith. He is elected to use the means God has placed within his reach to war against every unholy lust, while Satan is playing the game of life for his soul. He is elected to watch unto prayer, to search the scriptures, and to avoid entering into temptation. He is elected to have faith continually. He is elected to be obedient to every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, that he may be not a hearer only, but a doer of the word. This is Bible election. End of quote. And from the same author, from the book Education, page 169. No finite mind can fully comprehend the character or the works of the Infinite One. We cannot, by searching, find out God. To minds the strongest and most highly cultured, as well as to the weakest and most ignorant, that holy being must remain clothed in mystery. But, though clouds and darkness are round about him, Righteousness and judgment are the foundation of his throne, Psalm 97.2. We can so far comprehend his dealing with us as to discern boundless mercy united to infinite power. We can understand as much of his purposes as we are capable of comprehending. Beyond this, we may still trust the hand that is omnipotent, the heart that is full of love. End of quote. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. One, certain Christians teach that even before you were born, God chose some to be saved and some to be lost. If you happen to have been one of those whom God in his infinite love and wisdom preordained to be lost, then no matter the choices you make, you are doomed to perdition, which many people believe means burning in hell for eternity. In other words, through no choice of your own, but only through God's providence, some are predestined to live without a saving relationship with Jesus here in this life, only to spend the next one burning forever in the fires of hell. What's wrong with that picture? How does that view contrast with our understanding of these same issues? 2. How do you see the Seventh-day Adventist Church and its calling in the world today paralleling the role of ancient Israel in its day? What are the similarities and the differences? In what ways are we doing better? Or are we doing worse? Justify your answer. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled From Cigarettes to Castles, Part 2 One day at church an invitation for baptism was given. Whoever wished to be baptised was given materials including a review of the Seventh-day Adventist Church's fundamental beliefs. This whole spiritual experience happened very rapidly for me. In less than two months... 
With cigarette in hand, I began filling out the baptismal request form. As I continued reading, I read about abstinence from alcohol, tobacco, and illegal drugs, and I didn't know how I was going to quit. In February 1997, I was baptised. While I stopped drinking right away, I still struggled with tobacco. I tried everything to quit smoking, but nothing worked. Finally, I prayed, Lord, please take it away from me. And he did. My aunt, who lives in another village, invited me to help her around the house for a week. There was only one store that sold cigarettes, and it wasn't close. When I arrived, I told my aunt that I was now a Christian and was no longer the person I used to be. But she didn't know I still struggled with smoking. Every day, she gave me work to do. Four days passed without cigarettes. The fifth day, I came back home and still hadn't smoked a cigarette. Now I see that being at my aunt's was like a rehab centre for me. I'm amazed at God's wisdom and how he found a way for me to quit smoking. When I was planning to be baptised, my sisters told me that I should ask my parents for forgiveness. Both of my parents were crying with happiness. That's when I realised that you can have all sorts of victories with God. One thing that amazed me was that as we started to build a church, people brought offerings to the church, such as gold and jewellery, and knowing my past, they commissioned me to sell it. I was amazed and touched with that kind of trust. Later, I became a literature evangelist and a youth leader. It was during a gathering of literature evangelists that I met my future wife, Bogdana. We now have three lovely daughters and I'm an elder in our church. I'm just amazed at how God was able to turn me around and give me this life that I never even dreamed of. In a way, my dad was right. The end did come in 1999, the end of my former life. There is one thing I regret, the years of my youth that were spent in vain. They were completely empty years, no purpose, no meaning, no satisfaction and no direction. I understand now that it's better to live with God. You can have all kinds of victories in your life when you're with God, when you pray sincerely to Him. And as sometimes happens, this story is to be continued in next week's Inside Story. I trust that you have a a lovely Sabbath this weekend. This lesson was read by Dr. Percy Harrell. It was recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind. This podcast is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel.